a collection of everything so big it can never be catalogued or appraised, the loot of the world. You got five seconds to tell me where you buried the loot. Hello looters, welcome to episode 32 of Thief's Monthly Movie Loot. Once again, I'd like to thank everybody for the support. Our third episode, The Comedy Loot, where I had comedian Steve Mason as a guest, became our second most downloaded episode behind our first episode of the year. So I'm grateful for all the recent support everybody's been giving to this crazy project. Thank you and I hope you all keep coming back. We already have some great guests set for our March episode, so stay tuned for that. As for today, I'll be sharing my thoughts on some of the films I saw this month, the February loot. As usual, I start every month with a set of random criteria to guide me on what to watch. I finished the month watching 12 films in total, including one rewatch, so I'm going to talk about the ones I consider the best. So let's begin with my loot of films for February. A film from the 1920s. The first film I want to talk about is 1928's The Passion of Joan of Arc. This is a film I had been looking forward for years and I finally had a chance to check it out. Directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer, the film is based on the actual trial record for the titular character, played by René John Falconetti, after being captured by England and features her interrogation and subsequent execution at the hands of the clerical court. This film is widely considered to be one of the best films ever. Among the things that are usually praised and that caught my attention were its production and minimalist set design, Dreyer's direction, and most notably Falconetti's iconic performance. Falconetti was originally a stage actress, but was selected for this role by Dreyer himself after he saw her perform in an amateur theater, and boy did she knock it out of the park. She delivers such an emotionally charged performance, which is impressive for the silent film era, but instead of being limited by that, Falconetti makes the most out of her expressions and her glassy, teary eyes to the point that you can help but feel her pain and suffering. Other than Falconetti's performance, Dreyer's direction is just as impressive. The way he uses the camera and moves it around is something that feels unlike anything that was done at the time, and maybe even that has been done since. His constant close-ups of the faces of the judges and the court, accompanied by the gorgeous cinematography, makes these old, wrinkled men feel grotesque and evil in both their physique and soul as they face Joan and probe her, question her, and torture her psychologically. Finally, Dreyer uses a minimalist set design to create dread and build tension, from the way he shoots the torture chamber they use to intimidate Joan, or the way he shoots the angry mob in the final act, all of those elements certainly make of this one of the most beautiful and haunting films I've seen. 
My friend Jake Lemberg at Spade Archer Jake said The Passion of Joan of Arc is one of the greatest bear movies of all time, just stripped down to its emotional core. And I definitely agree. Like I said, Falconetti's performance is what drives the film all the way. Jake also added that he originally watched it without the score because it's rumored that Dreyer didn't want music accompaniment and without the music makes it feel like a memory. I'm gonna have to try that one day. If you haven't seen it, The Passion of Joan of Arc is streaming free on HBO Max and the Criterion Channel. A film with an African-American cast. Who's next? So, um, Dr. Davenport. Sent him to the gym? Hit the punching bags? Ain't that what you're prescribing? So why are you here? You feeling under pressure? You feel like, uh... A rock is on top of you. Come on now, speak the hell up. You better make it snappy. You only got three sessions coming. What are y'all looking at? What you looking at? You feeling sick? You need a healing? You need a healing? Do you need a healing? Huh? Do you need a healing? Some of y'all sick-ass sailors need to come back after working hours. See, that's when the good Dr. Davenport, he'll be laying his hands on you. Or he may have a book in there that may have the answers to all your problems and all your questions. Ain't that right? Ain't that right? Would you like to step into my office? February was Black History Month, so I wanted to highlight some films with African-American cast. One of the films I saw was 2002's Antoine Fisher, which was also the directorial debut of One Denzel Washington. The film follows the events that surround Fisher, played by Derek Luke, a Navy sailor that is sent for a psychiatric evaluation with Dr. Jerome Davenport, played by Washington, after several violent outbursts against other sailors. But as expected in this kind of film, Fisher says there's nothing wrong with him, or at least that's the front he tries to put up with Davenport, even though we all know that's not the case. In that aspect, the film doesn't hold any surprise and follows the typical motions of other similar films, with Davenport standing strong beside Fisher as he eventually opens up to reveal his troubled past, which involves abandonment, neglect, and abuse of all kinds. This film was a tough watch for me, maybe not for the film per se, but for how it hit me. As a recent parent of two adopted children, I've seen firsthand the scars that abandonment, neglect and abuse can leave in a little child, and the efforts that my wife and I are still making to try to heal those wounds. So to imagine a boy, any boy in those circumstances, to never receive that care and become an adult, all the anger and resentment and pain that all these children turned adults have to carry and all the painful ways all that it's bound to come out sooner or later, it was just too much for me, which obviously means that the film achieved what it had to. It is worth noting that the film is based on real-life events and the real Antoine Fisher was who wrote the screenplay. Both Luke and Washington are amazing in the lead roles, particularly Luke. The way he portrays all those feelings of anger and pain and want was excellent, while Washington perfectly played the laid-back and supporting doctor beside him. There are some script issues as far as Davenport's personal struggles go, but I don't think it lessens the film's impact that much. It is a heartbreaking but ultimately uplifting and inspiring film. Your mileage with this may vary, but it definitely hit close to home with me. Antoine Fisher is currently airing on HBO Max, Roku Channel, and DirecTV. A film from Robert Altman. 
I'm not going to be able to finish this puzzle. There's too many pieces missing. They should be there. I know where they are. Robert Altman was born in February 20, so I set out to watch one of his films. Altman is a bit of a blind spot for me. Before this month, I had only seen three of his films, The Player, Gosford Park, and The Gingerbread Man, but I enjoyed all of those, so I was looking forward to this. Images from 1972 was among the only films I had available in the streaming services I have, but it was an extremely interesting and pleasant surprise. Images follows Catherine, played by Susanna York, a children's author that starts receiving a series of mysterious calls that hint at the potential infidelity of her husband Hugh, played by René Aubergenois, but when she starts being haunted by unsettling visions, Hugh deduces that she might be suffering from too much stress and decides to spend some time with her on a remote country cottage. Unfortunately, Catherine's visions and hallucinations grow worse, which includes alternating appearances from two former lovers, as well as visions from her own doppelganger around the house. There's not much that can be said about images without spoiling some of its mystery, and yet I feel like I could speak two hours about it without even beginning to understand it either. The film borrows a bit from Ingmar Bergman's persona as Altman revels in the mind games he throws at the audience as we see this couple trying to make ends meet. This is the kind of film where you feel as if everything that's on screen has a purpose, definitive yet mysterious purpose, but that it's so open-ended and ambiguous at the same time that everybody can perceive it in a different way. In my case, the main themes I felt hung above the characters were guilt, abuse, repression, depression, and duality. It is said that Altman had a vague idea for the story and that he further developed it on the fly along with the actors, which seems like a bizarre yet interesting idea. As for the performances, all the cast is solid, but York is definitely a standout. Like I said, Images ended up being a surprisingly good watch, one that is both engrossing and maybe even frustrating, but in a good way. If you're curious to check it out, Images is available streaming on Prime, Roku Channel, Tubi, and the Criterion Channel. A comedy film. Hail Messiah! I'm not the Messiah! I say you are Lord, and I should know I followed a few. Hail Messiah! I'm not the Messiah! Will you please listen? I am not the Messiah! Do you understand? Honestly! Only the true Messiah denies his divinity. What? Well, what sort of chance does that give me? All right, I am the Messiah. One of the last films I want to talk about ties to the theme we covered on our previous episode, The Comedy Loot, and it's Monty Python's Life of Brian. The film is set in 33 AD and follows the, well, Life of Brian, played by Graham Chapman, a young, regular Jewish guy that is somehow mistaken for the Messiah. Despite his reluctance, he ends up being followed by people that want to praise him, as well as soldiers that want to silence and imprison him. 
Like most Monty Python films, it features an ensemble cast playing numerous roles while taking jabs at organized religion and institutions all across the aisle. The group manages a great mix of silly and clever jokes with doses of absurdity all through. I mean, how absurd is it that you have a film set in 33 AD where an alien spaceship swoops by 20-30 minutes in to miraculously save our main character, and yet that's not brought up again at all? That's top-of-the-line absurdity, and it works. To that effect, I was really surprised at how many of the jokes land, when many cases of this type of comedy is just more misses than hits, but here they really get a good rhythm going and land a lot of their jokes. The pick for me was the whole sequence from the clip I included when the crowd harasses and pursues Brian from the city to the mountain, and it results in some great exchanges and some of the sharpest jabs they take regarding the contradictory nature of religion and whatnot. That sequence almost had me rolling on the floor. My friend Brian Clarkson at Brian Clarkson 5 wasn't as enthusiastic. He said, I like Life of Brian, didn't love it, some good laughs, but some parts were dated. The best joke is the last one. And if you've seen it, you know, the last scene has Brian, along with other cast members, crucified when they break out singing Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, which is a brilliant ending. My friends at Best Film Ever podcast said, I remember Life of Brian being a lot funnier than it was upon a recent rewatch. It is, however, ridiculously quotable and contains the greatest joke in the history of cinema. Look, you've got it all wrong. You don't need to follow me. You don't need to follow anybody. You've got to think for yourself. You're all individuals. Yes, we're all individuals. You're all different. Yes, we are all different. I'm not. Which is a great joke. So if you like comedy and you like Monty Python, definitely check it out. A film with a title that starts with the letters C or D. There's one last film I wanted to dive into, but I wanted to bring it up because it was recommended by a good Twitter friend, Dean at C Movie Maker. He did this thing on Twitter where he would recommend a film to anyone that replied to a tweet of his, and I got 1972's Don't Torture a Duckling from Lucio Fulci. This film follows the events surrounding the murders of several young boys in the small Italian village of Axendura. As the police scrambles in search for the killer, a journalist, played by Tomas Milian, follows his own clues on his search for answers. This was one of those films that I found to be not great, but pretty good, and yet it kind of stuck with me because of how interesting it is. It is only my second full C film. I had seen his 1975 western Four of the Apocalypse a couple of years ago. But anyway, I really enjoyed this. Even though Fulci is more associated with horror, the film plays more like a whodunit thriller as we try to figure out who's behind the murders. Sure, there is violence and some gore, but it is more scattered than what one might be lead to expect from his reputation. 
My main gripe with the film is that it kind of juggles too many subplots and characters at once. Aside from Milian's character, there's the policeman investigating murders, there's a mysterious young woman that's hiding out in the village for some reason, there's a gypsy woman that practices voodoo and black magic that's kinda hinted to have something to do with the murders, and there's an affable priest that runs the home for boys where most of the victims come from. All these characters are introduced during the first half of the film in a somewhat clumsy and scattered way. I don't think they were integrated that effectively into the story and the pace is a bit off during this first half. One of the characters, the young woman that pretty much becomes the co-lead, is also a bit problematic in terms of her behavior, especially by today's standards. But putting that aside, the second half felt more focused and assured, and Fulci manages to stick the landing for the most part. So Dean, thank you so much for this recommendation. So that was my February loot, or what I think were the best films I saw this month. To close the episode, I'm going to give some quick talks on the other films I saw this month. A film with the number two in its title. 2008's Two Lovers from James Gray, which stars Joaquin Phoenix as a young man with several issues that finds himself involved with two women at the same time, the daughter of a business partner of his father, played by Vanessa Shaw, and a troubled neighbor that's actually having an affair with a married man, played by Gwyneth Paltrow. This film wasn't bad at all, but it did leave me puzzled in the ending as far as the intentions of the script goes. I'm not sure the way I perceive things is the way that the writer and director wanted us to perceive things, but I think that made it all the more interesting. A film with a title that starts with the letters C or D. 2019's Crawl, or as most people probably know it, The Alligator Movie. My Twitter friend Phil Sagan at Phil underscore Sagan said, Crawl was a fun, well-made B film, and he gave it 7.5 out of 10. And I pretty much agree, the film is simple and effective in terms of its goals. Even if they are not that high, it was a good ride. A film from the Criterion Collection whose number includes the number 2. 1966, The Battle of Algiers from Gino Pontecorvo. I like this film, but I have to say I was expecting a bit more from it. Anyway, the direction is tight and the film is tense, but I think it lacked well-developed characters. It's played more in a quasi-documentary style and that kind of neuters things a bit, but it's a good watch anyway. A sequel. 2018's Creed 2, the sequel to the 2015 Rocky spin-off. I thought the film was pretty good. It was predictable as far as how the story and the boxing matches unfold, but surprising in terms of how well it develops its characters, especially Ivan Drago. For that alone, I say it's worth a watch. A film featuring the name of a couple in its title. For this category, I saw two films. The first one was 1967's Bonnie and Clyde, which was pretty good and probably number five or number six in my ranking of what I saw in the month. Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway were pretty solid in the lead roles, but I wasn't that crazy about how it handled the supporting characters like Clyde's brother, played by Gene Hackman, or the cop that's pursuing them. I also thought the editing was pretty bad, which might be a hot take, because I read afterwards that it was praised and awarded, but what can I say? Anyway, it's worth a watch. The other film I saw with the name of a couple in its title was When Harry Met Sally, which was a rewatch. My friend Phil Sagan said, When Harry Met Sally is my favorite rom-com ever, 10 out of 10. And I agree, it's my favorite rom-com too, so if anybody else is a fan, you can check out my preview special episode where I dig into it. A film from Serbia. 2014's The Serbian Lawyer. 
This documentary was a bit of a short to get through. It follows the attorney that's assigned to defend Radovan Karadzic and Slobodan Milosevic for war crimes during the Bosnian War, but the documentary really lacks cohesion and substance, and it really didn't work out that well for me. So that was it, 12 films in total, which isn't bad, and within my monthly average, now that March has started, I've already settled on the categories for the next loot, which would be a film with the number 3 in its title, a film with a title that starts with the letters E or F, a film from the Criterion Collection, whose number includes the number 3, a film from the 1930s, a documentary film, the third part on a film franchise, a film directed by a woman, a film with the word spring in its title, a film from Ross Meyer, and a film from Greece. So as usual, if you have any recommendations for any of those categories, let me know. You can contact me primarily via Twitter at TFCGT or at the podcast account at TMML2021, or you can find me on Letterboxd at TIF12. So that's it for episode 32, the February loot. Stay tuned for our next episode sometime in the middle of March, where we will have another guest and another topic to discuss. Take care, everybody, and keep looting. Because of you, Antoine, I'm a better doctor. And I'm learning to be a better husband. You don't owe me anything. I owe you. You're the champ, son. You've beaten everybody who was beating you. I salute you. You hungry, Sailor? Back at ease, sir. <laughs>